You're listening to Playback, a Variety iHeartRadio podcast. I'm your host, Variety Awards editor Chris Tapley. This week we're wrapping up our chats with Oscar nominees this year with Paul Schrader, the writer and director of First Reformed. Paul received his first ever nomination this year uh, for original screenplay after what's been a very long and iconic career. Uh, it's been a long time coming for him to get this recognition. So I was very excited to get him in here and finally discuss this film, which he's actually been promoting for well over a year. Uh, movie debuted at the Venice Film Festival in 2017. Next week, just to let you know, uh, leading into the Oscars, uh, we'll be wrapping things up there with a special episode full of all of our interviews with various folks who were nominated, not just for Oscars this year, but for Spirit Awards. The uh, Independent Spirit Awards will be on the day before the Oscars as usual. So look forward to that next week. And for now, here is my chat with Paul Schrader. Beautiful weather, huh? Yeah, I remember that. I remember this. One one month where I remember when I lived here. One month it rained. Three weeks. Yeah. You ready to go, man? Okay, everyone. I'm here today with the Oscar-nominated writer and director of First Reformed, Paul Schrader. Hello, Paul, Chris. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Uh, first and foremost, as I was saying earlier, congratulations. Oh, thank I was you. I was thrilled. I mean, this especially because this is a movie that's been this movie premiered at Venice in 2017. Yeah, it's strange, you know. Independent film. <clears throat> excuse me, I have a little bit of bronchitis. Uh, independent film can have a very short life. You know, yeah. sometimes as long as three or four days. Yeah, we're now in the 16th month of this film's life. Uh, of it being sort of in the conversation that long, it's kind of amazing. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we're ready to step off stage. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. I was just going to ask. I mean, you, I'm sure you've never promoted a film for this amount of time in your life, right? I mean, it's well, just... Well, if you take into account, I've been promoting Taxi Driver for 50 years. As have I, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's just it's such a crazy uh, notion to, to kind of live with a movie for this long. It, it, has it opened different doors in the material for you as you've lived with it this long in the afterglow of having made it and released Not it? Not too much. I mean, really? I have a rather peculiar career. I work on spec. I've done a few assignments uh, over the years, but mostly I have my own little shop, which is, just consists of me, and you know, come up with something, write it, package it, put it together. And uh, rather than do something this past year, I just decided to um, uh, play this out because it was uh, a real sense of fulfillment, mm -hmm. you know, a sense of a circle being rounded off. Mm -hmm. Is it your most rewarding film for yourself that you've made? It's the greatest sense of completion. Yeah. The sense of uh, whatever I came to do, I've done it. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't know what I'm going to do next, but... Um, I certainly don't have a sense that I didn't do what I set out to do, mm -hmm. you know, 50 years ago when I started falling in love with movies. Yeah. Uh, and this, you know, you've received critical accolades all, all season. One of the most critically acclaimed films of the year, uh, Ethan Hawke, who we had on the show around time of release, uh, tons of accolades for him as well. And this culminates with your first Oscar nomination, which again... So happy for that. Was that particular recognition anything that you ever sought? No, not really. I mean, uh, you don't want to define yourself in that way. Yeah. You don't want to get to a point where you say, if I'm not nominated, I'm less of an artist or I'm less accomplished. And, um, and 
truth be told, if this film wasn't nominated and it wasn't critically acclaimed, it would still be a good film. <laughs> and so uh, I know that. Uh, but the other side of the coin is that when you get involved in this peculiar phenomenon we have now of award season, I was talking to Pavel Pavlovsky about this, it, it so seeps into your bones mm -hmm. that you find yourself caring about something that previously you didn't really care about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how lovely, by the way, speaking of Pavel, that you're both nominees this year, because I know Ida was a big influence on you. Uh, well, Ida was the movie. I was uh, gave Pavel uh, an award at the New York Society of Film Critics, and we got to talking, and after that, walking uptown is when I decided to write the script. That's amazing. I'm sure he knows that story yeah. by now, yeah. <laughs> uh, has there anything... Has there been anything like particularly eye-opening about having been a part of an award circuit like this? I mean, you've been around the block, you've seen it all, right? But something like this—is there—is there anything that's just like a new shade in, in an interesting way for you? No, I mean, I think it is. Um, you know, it, it is a kind of addiction because you really want it to be over, but then when it's over, you're going through withdrawal. So, um, you know, you don't quite know how to uh, deal with it all. But, uh, you know, and this is a fairly recent phenomenon. This is sort of post-Harvey Weinstein, this yes. uh, award season stuff. I mean, I remember in Taxi Driver, I went to the uh, ceremony, but I got sick and I left early. But there was nothing else. There was nothing before and nothing afterward. Mm -hmm. um, Swifty Lazar had a party, and that was about it. <laughs> and... Um, and uh, so this six months, you know, the, the Roma campaign, you know, began, uh, you know, in Cannes a year ago. You know, yeah. I mean, it wasn't in Cannes, but yeah. that's when they started putting the pieces together. Yeah. yeah. So this is quite, you know, phenomenon. Yeah. I take some of the blame for that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm the awards editor here at Variety and... Yeah, I mean, around 2001 is when I started covering the award season, and, and it just it's it has become as someone who makes his 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 living with it, it's become a ridiculous phenomenon. Well, it, it's, I mean, it's driven by all these advertisements, you know, mm -hmm. these publications who saw their ads fall off because of the internet. Mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden, this became the new source of, or sometimes the only source of revenue. Yeah, I mean, it's. It's rather incestuous that way. It's, it's, a, it's a unique business. I mean, what can we say? Um, I want to go back here a little bit and just talk about your work in critical writing uh, before becoming a filmmaker, you know, being a, an acolyte, if you will, of Pauline Kael. And, and uh, you know, whenever someone makes that kind of a transition from journalist slash critical writer, essayist, what have you, to doing the work that you've been writing about, uh, was it a difficult transition? Were you really eager to do it? I didn't think I had much choice because um, I had, you know, set out to be a film critic. That was my goal, and um, and Pauline had set up a job for me in Seattle, and I didn't take it. And I was a little thrown by that. Like, um, I should, I, in my mind, I said maybe I should have taken it, but something held me back. And then I left the AFI. I was a first-year fellow there, and I got in a dispute with George Stevens, and I left that. Then uh, my marriage fell apart. Then I didn't have any money. Then I didn't have a place to live. And um, I realized that nonfiction wasn't going to do it for me. Mm. There was something growing inside me that was very 
dark mm-hmm. and very angry. And I said, I've got to give expression to this. I have to make, I have to realize this thing, or this thing is going to become me. Mm-hmm. You know, I was in the car, driving around, drinking. There was a gun in the car. And at that time here in L.A., you could go over to um, the uh, Pussycat on Santa Monica. It was open all night long, and you could, people go, would go there and sleep, mm-hmm. beside other things. <laughs> and uh, and uh, out of that darkness, I got a bleeding ulcer and went in the hospital. And in the hospital, I realized this idea of this kid in this yellow coffin, trapped, floating through the city, seemingly surrounded, but absolutely alone. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's me. And, um, and so I wrote that script as therapy. I wrote it to not become Travis Becker. And that was its primary function for almost a year. I mean, you know, it wasn't put out to sell or anything. Mm-hmm. And I drifted around the country then and got my mental health back. And I came back, and about a year later, I was back reviewing again. A year later, I was uh, talking to De Palma. And I mentioned I had written a script once. And he said, oh, no, 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 please, please don't give it to me. <laughs> and, but I, I, he did read it, and he gave it to Mari, and, then, and that's where its life started coming up. Yeah. Did you feel, uh, did you fully and properly exorcise what you were trying to do with yeah, that? Yeah, I, I think an artist can be very, very functional. Yeah. Uh, it uh, is as functional as uh, almost any other tool. You know, it, you can, uh, you, you know, you, you can drive a nail into a piece of wood with the art. It's functional. Yeah. And, uh, and I still more or less operate in the same way I did back then. Not every film, of course, but, you know, every several years, you return and you say, what issues are really troubling me now mm-hmm. at this stage in my life? What are the metaphors, possible metaphors for that issue? And how can a story be explored with that metaphor? And, you know, so you're just um, ruminating things. Yeah. You no, know, at, at one point, I wanted to do a midlife movie. And for six months, I couldn't find it. And then it came to me in a dream. Um, a drug dealer I had known came to me in a dream, and we were talking. I woke up at 6 in the morning, and um, he was right in my face. I said, wow, that was vivid. Why did he come to me? I said, what were we talking about? He said, oh, he wanted to know about the movies. I said, that's him. That's my midlife crisis. A 40-year-old drug delivery boy whose boss is quitting to go into cosmetics, and he has no skills. That's it. That's what I've been looking for. And so that movie became Light Sleeper. Yeah. Uh, we had Willem on the show last year actually talking about that. Um, I find I, I saw this thing. I read something about uh, the fact that you didn't watch movies when you were young. So you, didn't, you, don't, you don't have like nostalgia, like childhood nostalgia for movies. No, I mean, I didn't know anybody who watched movies either. So I yeah. didn't even know I was missing anything. Uh, they were not uh, – we had a, a synodical decree against what they called worldly amusements, mm. uh, which was done in the 20s and the height, height of the uh, roaring 20s. And it was uh, theater attendance, smoking, car playing, dancing, drinking, so forth. And so that was the way I was raised. And, uh, and uh, it wasn't really until college that I started getting – interested in movies mm. and that was just the best time to fall in love with movies ever because you're dealing with the intellectual European cinema of the 60s mm. 
And all of a sudden, there were these movies that were equally serious. I was a serious kid. I was in a seminary. All of a sudden, you go and see these Berkman films, and you see these other films, and you say, hey, wait a second. There's no gulf between the sacred and the profane. Berkman is, is making movies about the same thing we're talking about in, in class. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, it's not like these two worlds will never meet. They can meet. Mm-hmm. And so that was uh, sort of the excitement of, uh, of doing that and then starting a film club in college and showing these films, you know, uh, you know uh, Sub Rosa and all of that, mm-hmm. you know. And so... Um, so I came to films as an adult, and uh, uh, I had to back up and spend quite a few years catching up with my film education. Yeah. I find that kind of fascinating because you said that as a result of that, you approach films more uh, cerebrally, analytically, uh, even just you know as you just started to break down how you began to write a script. I mean, this is the kind of stuff we love to talk about on this show, actually. Uh, and it's, it seems like a, a different uh, approach because, uh, you know, are you running on your gut when you're working, or are you really in your head saying, how do I translate this into something that reflects it? Well, um, I, I believe that uh, screenwriting is part of the oral tradition, not the literary one. So I just keep telling the story over and over again, and outlining it over and over again, until it achieves a certain critical mass. Mm-hmm. You know, if you can tell a story for 45 minutes and keep someone interested, you have a movie. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and that's a good thing, you know. It, it's either going to live or die after some a good deal of repetition. Mm-hmm. If it dies, that's good too because you've saved the work of writing the script that no one would really be interested in. Mm-hmm. And if it lives, and you have an enormous amount of propulsion because you know it all is all in your head. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, that's uh, the way I began with the taxi driver. That's the way I'm still writing. Well, let's let's go to uh, first reform. What was the genesis there? What what, what were you what were you thinking about? It, it seems rather clear when you see the movie, but I just want to hear it from you. What was on your mind that you wanted to kind of get out onto the page here? Well, there was first an intellectual decision to make a film about the spiritual life. I had refused to do this forever. I had written a book of theological aesthetics, but when people said try to compare my films to my, that book, I said, no, I'm not that guy. I'm not going to make that film. I'm not going to get out on that Braysonian ice. And um, and I just refused to. And then after that meeting with Pavel, I said, well, maybe it's time now to write that script. Mm-hmm. You swore you wouldn't write. And, um, and of course, um, the... Um, the, whole, the, the heaviness that was weighing down on us now in that... What had been a past, a theoretical conversation that was held generation after generation, what is man's purpose, is becoming less and less theoretical. I mean, uh, my, my grandchildren might not even have that conversation, and more likely than not, their, their grandchildren will not have that conversation because the species will not be having that conversation anymore because it will be a different species. Mm-hmm. So that is a... You know, an eschatological lodestone. Yeah. And so the first thing I did, I said, well, I've got to um, revisit all, all the films of this nature that I've liked and see all the new ones that have been made in the last 40 years. So you just start watching. And then you, you start cherry picking. You get a little bit here, a little bit there. And it starts to come together. 
So, you know, the metaphor then, of course, is the priest, and, and not the priest, the reverend, in this tourist church, you know, nobody attends. Um, and then you start taking it from there, and you take that, that the reverend came from Bresson, and the, the little church came from Bergman, and uh, the ending came from Dreyer, and the levitation came from Tarkovsky, and they get wound up together, and what surprised me most was that what was tying all these things together was the barbed wire of taxi driver. That propulsive, monocular obsession um, of that film. And I didn't really sense that the poltergeist of Travis Bickle had come in the room. And, uh, but he had, and he was sitting across the desk from me, <laughs> and, I, and uh, I sensed his presence. Probably on his shoulder all the time. You know, <laughs> I, think. I love that phrase, by the way, Brassonian ice. And I love that you just you wear your influences on your sleeve, even when, when you're influenced by yourself, as we're talking about with Taxi Driver in some sense, uh, that, you, that you're not afraid of that. Well, we, you know, uh, anybody who's honest knows that we don't do anything original. You know, it's just a, a whole mix and match kind of world. And the originality comes in the assemblage of influences and insights. And uh, so that... Uh, uh, that I you know I don't I don't see why anybody should feel that they create actually something new. Yeah. Speaking of Pavel, by the way, what do you think of Cold War? I liked it a lot. Um, uh, maybe I admired it more than I liked it. I wish he had warmed up his main character a little more. I had to talk to him about that and, and his producer. And they originally cast a, a guy who was very friendly, and Pavel changed it because he wanted it more like his actual father. Interesting. <laughs> um, you, talk, you started to talk about, you know, you, you work on spec. I wanted to talk about that over a, over a career because, uh, you know, you've been a writer-director in the, in the purest sense, your whole, your whole career pretty much. Uh, how has that search for funding shifted? How has just that entire business of being that changed? Well, I mean, virtually everything we've learned in the last hundred years doesn't apply. Uh, it is uh, it's changed a number of times and I at one point thought we were entering a new period of transition and now I believe we have entered a period of permanent transition that everything we learn this year won't apply next year just like when you open your computer the moment you open the box is out of date mm -hmm. uh, that's how fast things are changing and every three months or so, four months, you see neither, somebody testing out a new economic model. And so if you figured out how to finance a film three years ago, that's not necessarily how you're going to finance it next year. Yeah. And um, so I began in the studio system. I did four or five studio films. And then I moved over into the independent system. Um, and then um, uh, now I'm in this kind of quasi streaming independent system. Uh, Brett Easton Alice and I did a D DYI called The Canyons mm -hmm. just to test the water. So, you know, I talking to Brett and I said, do you think we, you think we could actually make a film? Just pay for it ourselves with this new technology. You think we could do that? And we could. And we did. And we made money. <laughs> you think you could do it again? No. I, <laughs> I could do it again. I won't. <laughs> uh, well, how about like, a, you know, do do new doors kind of suddenly open up when you're an Oscar nominee? I mean, do do you, do you have people? 
people treat you a little bit differently, and that's a little bit of a surprise because, um, you know, because you realize that it means more to them than it does to you. You know, I say, oh, you won, you got a, a nomination? Yeah, I got, yes, I got a nomination. Why does it mean so much to you? Um, and, uh, but, uh, uh, I I have never been a particularly good employee. <laughs> uh, uh, I had a little good string there when I worked with Marty and did four films. And then on Bringing Out the Dead, I could see that relationship was coming to an end because there were now two directors in the room. Mm. And Marty doesn't want another director in the room. Mm. So I knew that that was coming to an end. And I often ran into trouble with assignments and adaptations just because... I mean, I've never managed to hold a job in my life. Just that, there's always at some point you say, I've got a better idea. And someone else says, we don't care. And I said, well, I guess I better leave. <laughs> and uh, so I, I've sullied my reputation as a good employee for so many years now that I don't think people uh, think of me as, uh, <laughs> as somebody they go to as a job for hire. Um, bringing out the dead, speaking of... Uh, I actually love that film. How did you, you like how it turned out? Yes, I did. Yes. I'm a huge fan of that movie. Yeah, I, I, I thought uh, Nick was a little too old. Yeah. Uh, my only complaint. Um, because the book was written by a kid uh, when he was about 22. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to have a breakdown as a paramedic, you're going to have it in your early 20s. Because by the time you get to be in your early 30s, you figured it out. Yeah, you're numb to it. Yeah. yeah. And so I, I just felt that Nick was just too old in years, not in acting style or anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, But apart from that, I, I think it's a very cool film. I, I really love it. I, anytime I talk to someone who's associated with it, I try to bring it up. I think I talked to Patricia about that one time. Uh, it's just one of those movies from that great year of 1999. There were so many great movies that year. I also want to talk about Ethan Hawke. I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, the actors in your movies, they're vessels, you know, for, for what you're doing so much, like Nick Nolte, uh, Richard Gere, George C. Scott. Willem Dafoe, uh, Ethan. Why? Why? Why did you feel like he was the guy for this character? Well, you know, Ethan. Uh, if you you've met him, he's not like this character. Not at all. He's an Austin hippie. He's a Texas goofball. <laughs> um, but he has at this age now. He has this striking presence, those wrinkles, and a, a kind of gravity to his appearance that we associate with tortured men of the cloth. And so I started thinking about him while I was writing. And I was also thinking about Jake Gyllenhaal and Oscar Isaac, but Ethan was 10 years older. And I realized that because he had such a reserve, that maybe something good could happen if he didn't try to please you. Um, and the first time we met, I said to him, you know, what a recessive performance is. I said, whenever you sense the viewer getting interested in you, just lean back. And if they're still interested, lean back a little more. Don't do anything to curry their approval. See how, see, see how far you can lean back. See what happens. Mm-hmm. See if they actually now start leaning towards you. And, um, and so that was the approach we took. And Gear... In fact, I was just talking to Richard Gere about it, and he was so impressed by it. Ethan. He said, how can he do that? How can he not show anything? <laughs> Doesn't he have any emotions? <laughs> That's the trick. Uh, it's it's uh, a shame, actually, he couldn't 
get a nomination himself. I mean, gosh, he was like one of the most laurel performances of the year. Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, it seemed to be a coin flip between he and Willem, so I can't. It's hard for you. Yeah. <laughs> and how about that? I mean, Willem, uh, Sam Rockwell, someone you've worked with also on the circuit. Uh, you know, you feel like people you know on the circuit. That's been nice. Yes, yes. Um, uh, well, because I'm an A24 film, I've spent an unconscionable amount of time with Bo Burnham. <laughs> and if I never see Spike again, that'll be fine. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll see Spike again in an hour. <laughs> Every time I turn around, there he is with his glasses. <laughs> well, he could probably say the same to you. <laughs> and then, uh... But he did something that so uh, touched me. This was at the AFI luncheon. And uh, they were announcing the AFI graduates that were there. And I, I was the graduate from the first year. Not really a graduate, but I attended. And, uh, and so they mentioned my name. And Spike got up and started to applaud. And he just looked around the room and kept applauding. And people are looking at each other. Well, I guess we better stand up. <laughs> and eventually the whole room stood up. I'm sure I could see people looking at each other. Why are we standing up? <laughs> Ghost bike. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, what is, uh, you know, what's your next act? What, what do you, what, are you going to keep plugging away? No change? Just work how you always have? Or is there something well, specific? Well, I was hoping to do a film in uh, May or June with Ethan and Will. Hmm. But... Two days ago, Ethan got greenlit on this series about John Brown that he's been wanting to do for years and years, and he's also written. So I'm scrambling to try to recast that. Mm. Um, I, I should be able to. I do have the money. So, um, and it is a very um, desirable role. Just and, and then it happens. I mean, you know, Travolta dropped out of Jiggle two weeks before shooting. Mm. Not that I... I'm surprised by this stuff anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's a surplus of great actors, I should think. So uh, good luck with that. That would have been cool to see them together in one of your movies. Uh, and before we close here, we're both going to the Oscars and Oscar nominees luncheon here in a bit. First of all, anything you're, anyone you're looking forward to meeting that you haven't met this year there or anything like that? Uh, well, I mean, I think the, the sort of revelation of the year is Miss Gaga. <laughs> I mean, you know, she was in like one TV episodic, mm-hmm. and she just explodes on screen. Yeah. Liza and Judy together, and um, you know, I was talking to the writer yesterday, and I said, you know, when did you sense that you were catching fire in a bottle? Mm-hmm. Because um, uh, I did not expect that performance. Yeah, I love that movie. Actually, I, I thought it was the best iteration of mm-hmm. the material so far. So. And then the last thing, I've been asking people this at the end of the show lately. It's just a, kind of a connective tissue. I'm very curious from guest to guest. What is the movie that made you fall in love with movies? Well, uh, it's, it's a movie called Pickpocket by yeah. Robert Brisson. I was a uh, film critic here in Los Angeles for the L.A. Free Press, the counterculture publication. And I went to the Lemley Theater uh, on Los Feliz for a critical screening. And the movie's quite short, 75 minutes long. And in that 75 minutes, my life turned as if on an axle, because I realized two things. One is I realized that there was a connection between my sacred upbringing and my profane present as a UCLA film student, but it was a connection of style, not a connection of content. 
And out of that revelation, I wrote that book, Transcendental Star, on film. And the other revelation I had was I was living in a house with four uh, UCLA students who were doing a film called Naked Angels, a Corbin Biker exploitation film. And I, I thought that's just so declasse. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was no place for me in this business. I, I was very, very snooty and arrogant. You know, we'll tell you when you make a good film. And, um, and so I just didn't really imagine uh, being on the creative end of this business. Mm-hmm. And I saw this film. And there's a guy, he writes in his diary, he goes out, steals some stuff, writes in his diary, visits his neighbor, writes in his diary, the cops visit him. I said, I can make a film like that. You know, it's just about him and his room. There's mm-hmm. only two characters. I could do that. And then uh, three years later, I wrote Taxi Driver, wow. which is that film. And now, uh, 50 years on, both of those seeds, which landed in that Petri dish that morning, have grown to fruition and intertwined because I have a, a movie in the taxi driver tradition and a style in the Brissonian tradition. So it feel, does it feel that way to you? Like a, this has been like a, a culmination of a lot of things? Yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, I, um, I, I hope it isn't my last film, but if it is, it's, it's, it's a damn good last film. Absolutely. And again, congratulations. Thank you. Uh, see the movie, folks. It's out there. You should seek it out. It's called First Reformed, one of the best movies of the year. Uh, Paul Schrader, absolute honor to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Chris. 